Well, once again, Muslim terrorists a terrorist have slaughtered attack. innocent Islamic people. Extremists the now Islamic extremists now control much of the country. Their brand of justice is brutal and deadly. Newsflash, America. These Muslim extremists are, uh, are alive and well. They are not dead. And their video is not gratuitous. And it certainly is not irrelevant. It is a warning. Welcome to the Truth About Muslims podcast, the official podcast of the Zwemer Center for Muslim Studies, where we help to educate you beyond the media. Here are your hosts, Howard and Trevor. This is the Truth About Muslims podcast. Episode 11 with Dr. Peter Riddell from Melbourne School of Theology. Right. We're going to be Skyping into Australia, down under. Land from down under. Yeah, so tell us a little we bit about... We try our Australian accent out. No. Uh, how you going? No. How you going? No. All right. No, no, we no. We won't do that. We're not going to. But anyway, All Peter right. Riddell. Yeah, tell us about him. Well, he has a PhD from Australian National University. Uh, his degree is actually in Quranic exegesis. So cool. Yeah. If you think about it, I mean, even somebody with a degree in biblical exegesis, you immediately think, well, that's, that's kind of neat. All right. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really even know what that means. Quranic exegesis. <laughs> well, no. Same as like biblical exegesis. Like, how do you study the Quran? What yeah. do you, uh, how does interpretation happen? How does it apply in daily life? How does it go to the different schools of law? Wow, that's weird. How to read and understand the Quran. And he's a Christian. Yes, but here's the really cool thing, and this is uh, one thing I really appreciate, is he's respected in the Muslim world for his work on Islam. Get out of here. Yes. So he actually, uh, he taught at the London School of Theology, where he was the uh, professor of Islamic studies, and he also was the director of the Center for Islamic Studies and Muslim Christian Relations. Okay, well... That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And also uh, was a professor in the history department at University of London with uh, SOAS, which uh, S-O-A-S, which stands for the London School of Oriental and African Studies. Wow. So anyway, smart dude. Right. And we get him here in the studio. Well, and Australian kind of, accent. In, in, in Skype, but still in the studio. You get to hear it. Yeah, you'll get to hear it. And, and believe me, I, Howard, do you remember that... Uh, that time we were hearing Sinclair Ferguson give uh, a <laughs> message. He, he's Scottish, right? He's Scottish. Right. And I I kind of leaned over to Howard and I was like, I don't know why, but every time he speaks, he just sounds intelligent because of the Scottish accent. So this Peter's one, got a uh, an Australian accent. Which is just as good. So he just sent us a, a text saying that he's going to grab a, a coffee and he'll be ready to go. So in Australia, I believe he called a kappa. A kappa. A kappa. Hey, so I'm not going to try this Aussie accent, but if you do hear me, listeners, uh, have grace because for some reason... I'm going to try it. Well, we were in the, when we were in London, Trevor and I were in London once, and for some strange reason, I would just start to <laughs> speak with this weird... It's like, true. It wasn't even a good English accent. Even when accent. he would lead worship, he'd be like in Matt Redman. He'd no, be like, is no. it true to die? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's so true. But I don't know why. So anyway, so if you start to hear something weird, like my voice just sound not... Yeah, weird. mate. <laughs> Howard that's, starts throwing out mate. I don't. I don't. I don't think I'm gonna try not to do that. How so. you going? And, and actually, your accent sounds pretty good. Yeah. I mean, how long? That's were you there? not a knife. I've I've only been for a. Uh, I think I was there two weeks. Dude, you picked up a lot. They made fun of me terribly. What do you mean? But apparently, you make fun of people when you really like them in Australia. At least that's what they told me. I don't know. Oh. Okay. Anyway, let's give them a call. Yeah, let's do it. All right.
know Skype. I don't know Skype. Hello? Hey, Peter. This is Trevor. Hi, Trevor. How are you doing? Good. And this is Howard Key. Howard, introduce yourself. Hey, Peter. Hi, Howard. How are you doing? Great. I'm so excited about today. Yes, me too. Well, Peter, we, we debated um, whether or not to attempt an Australian accent um, when we spoke with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, well, actually, uh, it's you guys who have the accent. I don't have an accent. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. So uh, anyway, Peter, what we're doing here is we're, we're trying to get as many folks as we can, both from the academic community and also those who have worked extensively with Muslims, to kind of give us uh, give, give the listeners some handles on how to interpret the things that they see in the media. So that's kind of what the topic's going to be today. Okay. So we'll just kind of start with, uh, Howard and I were kind of joking around about having a, a PhD in Quranic exegesis and being a follower of Christ. Like, how did that come about? Well, um, I mean, it's a long story, but I'll give you the short version. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I took my undergraduate studies majoring in modern languages, in um, Indonesian and Malay language uh, and French language and literature. And when I wanted to go on to postgraduate studies, I followed the Indonesian study path. And my interest was in... Um, yeah, it was in uh, linguistics, really, but as I did my research, I was using Islamic texts. So I found that uh, the Islamic texts and the theology that was in them was uh, particularly interesting, challenging in some ways. Um, and so I ended up um, reorientating my PhD towards um, the theology and Quranic studies in, in Islam. Now, as a, as a committed and believing Christian, um, that was... Uh, not simply something that gave me academic interest, but uh, it had a direct bearing on my own faith position and, and my own faith as a, as a believing Christian. So, yeah, uh, as a Christian, I was I found that the studies that I was doing were particularly interesting beyond pure academics. So, um, yeah, that's you, you, how it's you mentioned all a little together. bit. You mentioned a little bit about uh, some of the text being challenging. Was there anything specific that you found uh, challenging as you started studying the text? Well, I think um, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, what I was finding, for example, was that the the Quran um, is a you know it's a text that's got about over six thousand verses in it, and some of those verses seem quite clear, but some of the other verses don't seem clear. And of course, that sounds familiar to us as Christians, in, uh, <laughs> right. in that we have to engage in all sorts of you know interpretive processes with the Bible as well. So. Yeah, um, when I saw some Quranic verses referring to polygamy, for example, um, that seemed to be saying that uh, that men could marry for for women. Well, I find that challenging. Um, how, <laughs> right. do Muslim, how do Muslims go about interpreting that? And of course, uh, it's not a simple process. You get all sorts of debates. And yeah, yeah. So, uh, Peter, this is Howard speaking. Um, I'm the guy who doesn't know much. Everything I learned about Islam, I've basically learned from being on this show. So Trevor's the expert, and uh, we interview experts, and I'm the like, the normal guy that just kind of asks maybe the basic questions that maybe our listeners want to know. So what is the difference between the Bible and the Quran? You, I, for instance, the Bible has a lot of writers um, over a long period of time. Um, I don't know who wrote the Quran. I don't know um, that, that process, what it has in it. The Bible has a lot of allegory, parables, uh, poetry. So could you just give us a basic rundown of the Quran? Yes, indeed. Well, let's first talk about 
who wrote the Quran. Um, as you say, the Bible's got lots of writers. <coughs> as far as the Quran is concerned, in a sense, I need to wear two hats. Let me first answer as if I was a Muslim, okay? Nice. Um, so the Muslim answer is no, no human person wrote the Quran. The Quran <laughs> is, is God's word. It comes from Allah directly. Right. And so the, 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 the hard copy that we hold in our hands is simply a record um, that was passed on by Muhammad from God, and they're God's direct words. So that's a, that's a Muslim answer. The, okay. the Quran is God's word. So, a non-Muslim answer, answer is, is – so sorry, Howard, you were going to say? No, that, that was actually me, Peter. Uh, would, the, would an average Muslim take offense at the suggestion that, that Muhammad is the author of the Quran? Um, the average Muslim um, take offense, not necessarily, but they would w- want to correct you um, mm, okay. because they, they, they would say it's a common um, non-Muslim misunderstanding that Muhammad's the author of the Quran. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, as far as the non-Muslim answer is concerned, you get a, f- a few different different um, responses there. For a long time. Um, Non-Muslims have assumed that Muhammad is the sole author of the Quran, and he may well have been. Um, but uh, there are, there are, especially in over the last hundred or so years, there's been some revisionist kinds of approaches suggesting that the Quran is a compilation of different bits written by different people, uh, and that's quite a dynamic debate taking place at the moment. So basically, the non-Muslim answer is humans wrote the Quran, but there's a debate as to exactly which humans did. So the non the non Muslims are the debate are debating about it. The 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 Muslims would not be debating about uh, multiple That's authors, right. right? Okay, so they're not even That's entering right. in the debate. Got it. That's right. Yeah, the stock standard answer from Muslims is that it's it's from God through Muhammad's mouth, and Muhammad was just like a typewriter. And then, as far as the aspects of the Quran, like the the allegories, narrative, what what does it have in it? Uh, or is it just like all yeah. these laws or decrees or? Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually. I mean, the Quran, it's kind of like a mosaic where you've got a whole bunch of different elements there, like we do in the Bible. I suppose the difference is that in the Bible, you can easily divide the books up according to uh, historical books, um, prophetic books, uh, wisdom literature, all sorts. You know, there there are genre types in the Bible, different styles. Whereas with the Quran, you certainly have all of those styles, but they're much more intermixed within each chapter. So, I mean, there's one chapter, chapter 12, the story of Joseph that's mainly narrative. But apart from that chapter, most of the other chapters are a bit of this and a bit of that. You know, there's this didactic teaching material, there's narrative material, there's uh, prophetic material. So it's all sort of intermixed. It's not as easily easy to divide up according to styles as it is in the Bible. Interesting. So it would take a narrative and comment on that narrative? I'm sorry, I missed that. So it would take the narrative like the Joseph story and then it would comment and teach on that narrative. Yes, and um, when you read the when you read the, the the Quran, when you read a narrative, for example, you know from the Bible, you expect to read this flowing narrative, and in a sense, the the, the sort of lesson is to be drawn out by the reader. Right in the Quran. In the Quran, um, the, 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 the teaching comes through much more clearly. So a bit of narrative is told and then you get a verse or two where the, 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 the book then kind of explains what the lesson is. There's this sort of didactic teaching voice that keeps coming, inserting itself from time to time. And, of course, that's understood by Muslims as being the voice of Allah who's coming through and explaining what the purpose of the story is. Uh, Peter, what are some of the the stories that we have in the Bible that are also found in the Quran? Um, 
Well, um, speaking at a surface level now, you'll find because the detail of the story is often somewhat different. But uh, in terms of the macro level, um, you find the story, a story of Joseph in the Quran that obviously comes from the Bible. You find Moses makes regular appearances in the Quran. Um, David uh, makes regular appear- appearances in the Quran. Of course, there's the birth narrative of Jesus and some other verses that talk about his ministry. Um, you find um, the story of Jonah in the Quran. Wow. Um, so many, many of these, you know, many of the names that are familiar to us from the Bible, you encounter in the Quran as well. Now, when you dig down, when you go beyond that surface level and you look at the detail of the story, then you find little twists and turns and differences that sometimes are not significant, other times they are significant. You find a creation story in the in the Quran. So there's lots of parallels um, at the macro level. When you dig down and look at the details, sometimes there are significant differences. Wow. So do you find that uh, the, the same point is trying to be made from the, from the biblical narrative as the, the Quranic narrative or the teachings from the Quran? Sometimes, yes. Yes. Um, uh, it's a fascinating study, really, to, to look at the Quran and the Bible side by side and do a similarities and differences kind of study. So you find many many parallels. Um, uh, you know, the story of Joseph, for example, is quite interesting because the, 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 in many ways the story is very, very similar. Um, Joseph, uh, you know, is, is um, there, there are the jealous brothers who sell him off. Uh, he goes down to Egypt. He becomes famous. Um, those sorts of parallels are there. Um, uh, but then you, 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 so you get kind of you get differences as well. Where Potiphar, the story of Potiphar's wife in the Bible uh, also occurs in the Quran, uh, but it's not quite. It's a bit more oblique. And often with the, I, I guess another important point with the Quran is sometimes you find a story that sounds familiar, but the details missing, and you get the impression that the audience that it was written for must have known the story, mm. so that. The teller only told part of the story, and today we look at it and think, well, hang on, that's missing. I'll give you an example of that, the story of, of David and Bathsheba. Now, that's a rich narrative in the Bible, as we know, uh, very colourful, very gruesome in many ways, um, very disturbing in some ways. In the Quran, there's a kind of oblique reference to David having been put to the test and uh, there are a few verses around that, and you, you you read it and you think, oh, that must be about David and Bathsheba, but it doesn't actually tell the David and Bathsheba story. Oh, interesting. So sometimes, you know, you, in a sense you have to read some parts of the Quran and then read the Bible to understand what the Quran, Quranic context is. And, and so the question, I guess, is that when you have Joseph who uh, um, is faithful to God, uh, in the Quran it would be to Allah, and then the, the, the Jewish people, the promised, uh, uh, the people of God, um, that would be Muslims? Oh, well, yes. I mean, the, 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 the Quran talks about it has certain terms that p- the people of Israel, the, they call them the Bani Israel, the people of Israel. There are references to them, but um, they're portrayed um, as having been given uh, an original um, you know, favor, but they betray the favor, uh, and so as a as a people, they are they are punished, um, and they're sort of kinds of outcasts. So, similar again, similarity and difference, and that's the impression mm. I always get when I read the Quran: similarity and difference. So, when you have the story of Joseph, for instance, it's not really about 
uh, it is about Israel and the, the Muslims are interested in that? It's in the Quran? Or is it really about Muslims are trying to find their heritage, like the story of God's people? In a sense, the 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 Israel connection or the the Hebrew connection uh-huh. is is more um, is more tangential. Uh, in, in the Quran, the purpose of the story is to give an example of one of Allah's prophets, and Joseph is a prophet in the oh. Islamic scheme of things. Um, and the prophet uh, is faithful to God; he follows God's instructions, he follows uh, the instructions of Allah, um, and he he is, serves as a model for how people should follow the example of their prophets. That's the core. That's the core message that's coming out of the Quranic story of Joseph, not so, so much part of the story of the people of Israel. Right. So how is this, how is Israel, I mean, how is Joseph an Israelite, a prophet of, of Allah? Um, the, the fact that Joseph, as we understand it, was an Israelite is, is not focused on. The, the concept of the people of Israel is a, is a concept in the broader Quranic context, but Joseph is not specifically identified with them. Um, he, the, the, the Quranic story is really about using him as an example of one of Allah's prophets who provides a model to, to the faithful people. Oh, that's the, so interesting. His, his, Israel, his Israelite identity is not emphasized at all. Wow. Um, Peter, could you, I mean, breaking it down to the, maybe the nitty gritty of what's happening in today's world, I think one of the questions that I often am asked, and I'd really like to hear your, your take on this is, is the Quran a, a book of violence or a book of peace? And, and those are the two categories that people always sort of present the question in. And how the would essence. you respond? <laughs> yeah. The, to give us the, the give us the essence of the Quran. And so how would you respond to that? Yes. It's tricky, isn't it? Because you know the, <laughs> me- the, me- the media, the media needs to talk in sound bites, so they can't go into great complex answers. So they have to boil things down to the lowest common denominator, and unfortunately, the lowest common denominator is far too low to make much sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like it, and of course, the the, lo- the lowest common denominator is that either the Quran is a book of peace or the Quran is a book of violence. I mean, the the bottom line is the Quran is about the size of the New Testament. It's got um, 6,200 verses, roughly. It's divided into 114 chapters. Um, It represents two very significantly different periods of Muhammad's life, Um, um, and he played a very different role in those two periods. And so um, you get all sorts of messages coming through in the Quran, and you just can't boil it down into one soundbite. you can you can find whatever you want in the Quran, and the bottom line is um, one of the reasons that Muslims are so diverse today uh, is because they can find different models from the Quran and its associated literature to follow. So you know you have the ISIS phenomenon; they take a very sort of literalist surface approach to the Quran, and um, whereas you find other Muslims who reject the ISIS message, who find different messages in the Quran that they they prioritize, that they promote. And so the Quran can actually support a whole range of quite opposite kinds of views. Um, perhaps I could give you an example of that? Please. Um, oh, that would be great. 
If you well, I mentioned earlier the question of polygamy. There's a there's an earlier verse uh, um, that uh, when I say earlier, it comes uh, uh, in chapter four in the Quran around verse three that says a man can marry four wives. So so how is a Muslim to interpret that? Well, some Muslims say well. The verse says a man can marry four wives um, if he can treat them equally. Um, so it's simple. A man can marry four wives. And so Muslims that take a very literalist approach to their religion interpret it like that. Other Muslims say, well, that verse um, uh, came, came down at the time that um, there were lots of battles and lots of men were being killed and women needed protection in that society. Therefore it allowed for women to get the protection that they needed. That was back then. But today we live in a different world, so the verse doesn't have direct relevance for today. So in other words, we don't follow it literally. And anyway, a man can't treat four wives equally. So um, these Muslims say that actually Islam today does not allow for polygamy. Now, they're quite opposite points of view based on the same verse. And you can have that kind of discussion about a whole range of verses in the Quran. And I think that's one of the things that I try to do in, in our course, in, in to look at key Quranic verses and associated literature and say, well, how do Muslims interpret these same verses in quite different kinds of ways? Right. So Christians kind of follow, fall into that historical uh, uh, interpretation of whether or not it, it, it it's uh, for us today. Um, so when, when uh, Muslims do that, when they interpret uh, the Quran, do they have other scriptures that speak into that or other sources that speak into that that support their argument or is it just uh, uh, they're just open in, in, uh, interpretation? Well, they do have uh, – there is a whole body of literature that sort of um, surrounds the Quran and, and in fact the course that, that I run um, for, for CIU is designed – it's called Understanding the Quran. My basic premise is that you can't understand the Quran simply by reading Quranic verses but you need to look at the literary context as well. Oh. And um, there are – yes, there are, there are other – elements of literature that open up the Quranic pages to a whole range of different kinds of interpretations and explain why Muslims debate and differ and bitterly argue in some cases over certain uh, Quranic teachings. And as you say, it's similar to, similar to the Bible in that, you know, I mean, any sacred text, um, it can be opened up to it should be opened up to interpretation. How do people interpret the words on the page? And right. different people will interpret them differently. So, Peter, if we're thinking about this in the context of Christianity, we, we obviously at you know, the seminary would emphasize proper hermeneutics, uh, interpreting the Bible in light of context, historical context, uh, using commentaries, um, and, and getting at the author's original intended meaning. Would you say that as Muslims uh, do interpretation with the Quran that it's equally complex? I certainly would. Um and of course, the question of getting at the author's uh, original intended meaning—you know—that's one of the basic questions of hermeneutics, isn't it? Right. Um, mm -hmm. But but quite simply, sometimes you, you you can't establish that, and so the question becomes: Well, how does that text that's sort of veiled or sort of ambiguous? How does it speak into the world today? And that's absolutely—that's a question for the Bible. It's a question for the Quran, and they are equally complex. So, what is that process for Muslims? Uh, for Christians, I mean. Someone could be sitting in their room at night, having a quiet time, and come up with a theology, and suddenly go to their friends and say, "This is what I believe." I don't 
necessarily know that I've encountered a whole lot of Muslims waking up in the morning having Quranic studies, coming up with their own interpretations. So what is sort of the process of interpretations within Islam? Well, um, the again, uh, it will depend what school of thought you're coming out, out from. Let, let's just take, for example, the very surface-based um, literalist kind of approach. And, and um, I mean, to, to use an unpleasant example, we think of ISIS at the moment or that, that, that wing of Islam. They read a verse of the Quran and they say, well, that is God's word. Um, it is it is unambiguous. It is clear. So there are certain verses in the Quran that talk about striking the necks of people. So they interpret that to justify beheadings. And we've heard the horror stories of beheadings coming out of the Middle East at the moment, practiced wow. by groups like okay. ISIS. Um, so they're inter- you know that they interpret, but their interpretation is very simplistic. It, 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 it says, well, the words on the page say it, therefore you do it. Yeah, full stop. Right. Other Muslims, as you know, are horrified by what's going on in the Middle East with all the beheadings, and they say, look, you, the Quran should not be interpreted that way. Um, what we need to do is look to see how the schools of thought and how the different scholars have interpreted those verses down the ages and ask the question, how is it relevant for today? And there are um, some mosques, for example, where you have scholars who are very rationalist-minded, who are very philosophical, um, who, are, who are much more sophisticated in their interpretation, and they train their people accordingly. So in a sense, for, for the average Muslim, the decision becomes what kind of teacher are they going to follow, and that will determine what kind of interpretation, interpretative approach they end up following. Is it going to be surface meaning, literalism, or is it going to be a more sophisticated, rationalist kind of interpretation that asks the question, what does it mean for today? It's either backward-looking or forward-looking. You, you mentioned teacher, uh, so it seems like a lot of the, the Muslims look to their teachers. Um, how do they get to that point where they have that much respect or, or a voice in, um, in Muslims, even in that, just that area or, or internationally? Yes. Well, the, the, first, the first hallmark of respect, I suppose, is knowing the Quran, knowing the Quranic context, uh, context having studied the text. Uh, sometimes it involves uh, being able to you know, visibly recite the text. Uh, some people memorize the whole text. So that's the first step of recognition. Beyond that, um, often that first step is sufficient for the much more simplistic kinds of groups, uh, literalist kinds of groups. Beyond that, then there are Islamic seminaries um, or indeed some mosques run specialist training schools, madrasas, for example. Um, and so Muslims who want to specialise, become recognised specialists in their faith can go and do specialist studies just as we do in, in the Christian tradition and they come out with certificates. Um, uh, you can do them online. Um, they're available in all sorts of traditional ways but also specialist training to become an Islamic scholar, a recognized scholar, is, is available in the most up-to-date IT, online kinds of ways that uh, you can imagine. So there are all different ways that people can do it. But the school they choose, the methodological approach they choose to follow is going to sometimes produce quite different out- outcomes. Peter, could you give us an example uh, maybe that we could draw a connection with Christianity and some of the ways in which Christians have the same sort of problems where there's sort of the, the literalist approach? I mean, would you say that, that guys like ISIS would be the ones walking around plucking out their eyes and cutting off their hands because it causes them to sin? Is that the sort of literalism that we're talking about? 
Well, it is the, <coughs> that kind of literalism, but <coughs> that literalism tends to... Uh, um, others tend to be the victims in the case of ISIS. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. that's, yeah that's true. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, you know, you can choose any number of verses from the Bible, can't you? For example, um, uh, is it necessary for, for women to cover their heads when they go, go, go to church on a Sunday? Um, uh-huh, yeah. Some would say, well, the Bible says yes, uh, so they do it. Others would say, well, that was... That was in the old times. Uh, we've moved on, really. And, uh, yeah, so you, you, you can find many verses in the Bible like that. So what do we do when we hear people saying the Quran says that? I mean, clearly not Muslim. You know, typically, unfortunately, sometimes they're, they're evangelical Christians seem to speak the loudest on this. But they speak uh, as that Islam is so simple. If you just understood this theory of abrogation, you would understand this. If you just understood what the Quran really says, it means this. How should Christians respond when they hear those sorts of oversimplistic interpretations of Islam? Well, I think we have to distinguish between... Well, we have to see the, the in some ways, the complementarity between Islam as a system as a theological, well, in some cases, ideological, political system, mm-hmm. and Muslims as people and what they do with those that system and its tools. Um, to, to say that Islam is in its essence X or Y um, is, is, is problematic. I, I would want to say, well, if you're going to talk in those terms, then you need to say that Islam in its essence is X and Y and Z and A and B and C, and often those elements will be contradictory. Um, what's interesting, uh, where I think the conversation does become valuable, is when you ask the question, well, what are Muslims doing with those literary materials? And they're arriving at quite different conclusions. So you, take, you often illustrate a point by taking extremes, and you can take an extreme by using a group like al-Qaeda or ISIS or very literalist groups and holding it against some of the much more modernising kinds of groups today. Um, and... You, you look to see what they are doing with their textual materials and you, ha- you can only conclude by saying, well, clearly Muslims are doing very different things with their textual materials so there is no one essential summary statement you can make about the essence of Islam because it produces different outcomes. Um, so we have to see Islam in its diversity and it, but at the same time, uh, the only other point I would add is we, we need to we need to be willing to encompass all those different viewpoints as we look at Islam so we, you don't rule one of them out. And that's where I'm also uncomfortable when you hear people say, oh, ISIS, are, um, you know, they're distorting the text of Islam. They're not real Muslims, therefore they're outside the fold. In a sense, all that does is solve the problem. Um, solve the problem, but it is a problem. There is a problem there in that some Muslims are using their text to reach some fairly problematic conclusions. So that's a that's a big challenge that Muslims have got to, got to deal with. But uh, you, you don't solve the challenge by simply excommunicating one group who are problematic and saying, therefore, we don't have a problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> well, it's, well complicated. It's, it's really interesting because I think within the Muslim community, a lot of people get really upset and they say, why aren't the moderates standing up and uh, speaking out against the extremist? And in some ways they are, but they're not ready to excommunicate because oftentimes I find that Muslims aren't willing to say who is or who isn't a Muslim because they don't even feel like it's their their place to do so. But um, 
we hear a lot of Christians sort of saying who is in or who isn't it. And most of the people that saying, you know, Islam is a religion of peace, I'm kind of wondering, like, they're not even part of the Muslim community, yet they're speaking so boldly and matter-of-factly about Islam, whether it be peaceful or violent. Yes, and and that's not a not a line I take. I, I, I personally don't stand up and say Islam is X or Islam is Y because, uh, well, for a start, I'm not a Muslim. Um, secondly, I'm aware that um, when you look at all the different Muslim in methods of engagement with their textual materials, actually Islam and Muslims end up being X, Y, Z, A, B and C. So we have to see it in all its diversity and find the debates fascinating. I find the debates within Islam fascinating. Uh, Peter, you mentioned yourself not being a Muslim. Do you feel like that the, that Christians do have a role in sort of determining what Islam is or isn't, or is that something for the Muslim community themselves to work out? Oh, look, um, at the end of the day, the, it's for the Muslim community to work out. I think Christians do have a role in um, in listening to the debates, listening to the different voices, and building relationships and partnerships with certain parts of the Muslim community. Um, it's, it's usually hard for Christians to build friendly relationships with the ISIS members of this world, but um, as, yeah. as, the, the more, um, as the more modernizing kinds of Muslims struggle with the ISIS members, I think we should, we should do what we can to support and encourage them, but they have to work it out. We can't work it out for them. Uh, as far as textual criticism, uh, it's I, uh, from what I've learned in, in Bible college, is that it's pretty recent for the Bible in the last uh, 50 years, I guess, uh, where people are starting to look at the Bible uh, more deeply. Um, do you find that there's any textual criticism happening in the Quran uh, from the Islamic side? Mm. Now, that's a very interesting question. Um, it, it It is in its infancy, um, and in some ways it's being driven by textual criticism of the Quranic materials by non-Muslim scholars who, are asked, who, who have learnt from the kinds of textual critical methods developed for the Bible and are asking those same questions of the Quranic materials. Now, the purpose of non-Muslim scholars in doing that is not, it's not destructive. They're not doing it to you know, pull the Quran apart, but it is very challenging for Muslims. The bottom line is the... Uh, standard Islamic dogma, the teaching, is that the Quran is God's word revealed through Muhammad, perfect in every way, with absolute certainty about every dot and every dash and every letter and every word. Now, the bottom line is, contrary to that viewpoint, there, are, there is manuscript evidence out there, other historical material that suggests that actually the Quran is an evolved text, just as the Bible is an evolved text. Wow. Um, that's very challenging for Muslims, and non-Muslim scholars have been pursuing that, and Muslim scholars are beginning to, to respond and engage with that, but it's very much in its infancy. Are they responding out of defense or uh, genuine curiosity in their own? Both, actually. You're, mm. you're getting a very defensive response from um, what I would call, I suppose, 
um, well, not complete literalists, but but people who feel that the foundations of their faith are threatened by such questions, whereas some very very modern kinds of Muslims are reacting out of curiosity and looking at the materials increasingly. But we've got a long way to go on that on that score. It's a matter of watching this space. It's going to be a very interesting conversation over the next fifty years. Peter, I know that a lot of your your research too deals with the history of Islam, and uh, I remember you wrote a book. Uh, what was it? Islam in context. Is there mm-hmm. a history of jihad that ties all the way back to, you know, the seventh, eighth, ninth century, and that it's been kind of going all the way forward, and it's just coming to its kind of peak now, or is this relatively a new idea? I mean, I think that's a question a lot of people are wondering. Did jihad just kind of pop up out of nowhere? Or has this been been being played out through Islam throughout the centuries? Uh, certainly the latter. Um, the, the, the history of jihad has been played out from the very time of Muhammad. Um, as for the meaning of jihad, well, you know, we, we, we hear that there are two meanings. One tends to be military activity. The other one tends to be internal purification um, mm-hmm. of, of oneself. Um, and that tension has been there from very early on as well. Um, we've tended to find that in some parts of Sufism, um, the idea of jihad being a, a question of internal personal struggle has been there since fairly early on. But certainly the idea of jihad being a question of military struggle to defend and in some cases assert the supremacy of Islam has been there from the very beginning, from the, from the life of Muhammad. Uh, give us a little bit on Sufism. And, and with that, I'm kind of curious, are individuals, are they even allowed to kind of have their own personal interpretation? Um, it's interesting, you know, one of the questions we look at in, in our course is, is beyond the Quran, how interpretation came about and how legitimate it was. And what you find is that in the first two to three hundred years of Islam, um, uh, I suppose more literalist kinds of Muslims were very uncomfortable about uh, interpreting the Quran in any way other than in a strictly literal way. Now, inevitably, you get tensions with that. Um, some people are satisfied with they want simple answers. They go to the words on the page. They interpret them literally. There's their answer. That's That works for some people. Other people say, well, you know, there's more to to life and to the world of spirituality than simply reading pages and interpreting them literally. And and Sufism evolved from very early on, I think, out of a desire and a recognition by some Muslims that, um, you know, the, the bigger questions were not being answered by such simple approaches. Often the, the emergence of, Sufi, of Sufism was influenced by um, mystical um, traditions in some parts of the world that were conquered by Muslims, such, such as Iran and such as India. Oh. Um, so, so in a sense, if you boil down the difference between Sufi and non-Sufi Islam, it boils down to the question, should um, sacred texts be interpreted literally or uh, are, are there layers to meaning? Uh, can it be interpreted more, much more metaphorically? That's the big big tension and you get that led on to two two clear streams one very literalist stream and one much more metaphorical stream in interpretation now you spent a lot of time in indonesia one of the questions that just keeps popping up in my mind is that for a muslim and this is what i've uh, learned before is that uh they read the quran in arabic now in indonesia they're speaking indonesian bahasa is that correct and, yes, that's right. And so they're not reading the, the Quran in their um, in their own native language. They're reading it in Arabic. 
how, how do they feel about that? And, and how does the, uh, yeah, how do Muslims work together as far as their views on different uh, regions um, in their beliefs? So, Yes. Um, the, um, that touches on the question of translation of the right. Quran, of the right. Arabic text of the Quran, because um, the Quran itself is regarded as being the Arabic text. Um, any translation of the Quran into other languages is not regarded as the Quran. It's usually called an interpretation of the Quran. Um, so Muslims the world over, whether Arab-speaking or non-Arab-speaking, will study the Quran in its Arabic form, but in places like Indonesia and India and so forth, they won't necessarily be able to um, understand the grammar of the, of the Arabic. They might know the broad meaning of a verse, but they won't really understand the language. So they depend a lot on the translated text. And um, that's big, uh, there were big debates through the years as to whether translation should have happened at all. Um, but certainly in, from the 20th century onwards, translation of the Quran into these what they call interpretations, um, has been much more common and much more widespread. And that's what Indonesian Muslims depend on. That's what you know, Bangladeshi Muslims depend on. They depend on translations into their own languages and then they learn by rote certain key verses of the Quran in Arabic that they need for prayer and so forth. So why, why are these referred to as uh, interpretations rather than translations? Well, um, I mean, you know what it's like to translate something. The question is, are you able to absolutely capture in the translated text the the essential and total meaning of the original and you know sometimes it's easy to do other times it's quite difficult you know sometimes the original text is ambiguous well how do you rend- how do you capture that and put it into the translated text so you if muslims believe that the Quran, it's, it relates to their view of Quran as scripture. They believe that it's God's word. They don't believe that it's word recorded by men that's inspired. They believe it's absolutely God's word. So the divine word as they see it, they're uncomfortable about a human being translating that into a human language, into a, a, a language such as English and so forth because they're playing with the divine word and they're worried about what they're losing. Now when we look at the original text for the Bible, uh, let's say in Greek, for instance, um, you'll find grammatical errors or spellings or um, yeah, punctuation. Uh, is there anything like that in the original Quran? Uh, um, uh, Good question. Um, well, it depends what your point of reference is. If if you take a modern Arabic gr- reference grammar, a grammar of modern standard Arabic, then I could find you verses in the Quran where the Arabic doesn't seem to quite fit the rules. However, the answer to that would be that the rules of Arabic are not determined by modern grammars. They are determined by the Quran. So oh, the Arabic of the Quran nice. that must be s- correct. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So the Arabic of the Quran by definition is correct and therefore modern grammars need to reflect that. Wow, that's so, so interesting. It's, it's, it's an interesting one. It's a very, it's a very high view of scripture. It's a, it's a, it's a higher view of scripture than than in the case of the Bible, because we're willing to allow for there to be sort of, um, yeah, grammatical problems in in the recorded word that we have today. Um, whereas in, um, it's quite different in the in the case of the Quran. Now, are there any uh, texts in the Quran that uh, Muslims have a hard time with because of contradiction, uh, or just? Uh, it not fitting with the regular the the general flow of the Quran or the the message of the Quran. 
Um, yes, and uh, earlier Trevor referred to um, the concept of abrogation. Um, and this, is, again, is quite interesting. Um, if we consider that Muslims believe that the Quran was revealed through Muhammad um, over a space of um, 20 odd years, um, 22 years. Now, it was revealed over those 22 years according to the, the setting of the time, the context of the time. But of course, context change. So sometimes you find that there are inconsistencies, what appear to be inconsistencies in the Quran, but the answer to that is that, well, actually, Allah revealed verse A in a certain setting, but five years later there was a different setting and that that um, detail needed to be adapted to the new context and that's why you'll find differences there. So it's not actually a contradiction as such. It merely reflects the evolving into um, revelation that took place. Now, you know, in a sense we have a kind of a theory of abrogation, don't we, between the Old Testament and the New, and the New Testament. Right. It's, it's somewhat similar. Yeah, hotly debated with all, all different theological interpretations, even regarding the Bible, whether there's this sort of progressive revelation, is there abrogation, and even Christians are having a hard time settling this. But again, we think Muslims have kind of got it all figured out, and it's pretty simple, but it sounds just equally complex. Well, I mean, Muslims, Muslim scholars generally agree on the concept of abrogation, although some challenge it, but there's widespread agreement. But in terms of agreeing on the exact detail of which verses abrogate which, that's much more contentious. Mm. Uh, you recently uh, published a book with John Azuma. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that book? Yes. Um, it's um, called, well, Islam and Christianity on the Edge, Talking Points in Christian-Muslim Relations into the 21st Century. Um, John and I were, um, uh, we served as directors um, of the Center for the, uh, Islamic Studies and Muslim Christian Relations at the London School of Theology over many years. Um, and um, during that time, the center held a series of um, uh, seminars uh, that turned into, into papers. Um, and John and I decided through, through conversation to uh, compile those papers into a volume. So the volume that, that you're referring to actually represents the papers that were given um, at the London School of Theology between 1997 and 2008, I think, um, plus a few that are commissioned as well. Now, the purpose of the book really is to do what the subtitle says, to provide talking points in Christian-Muslim relations. And it talks about all different kinds of issues. It talks about uh, the question of jihad. It talks about um, issues of textual criticism. Uh, it talks about um, some of the diversity, the, the debates among Muslims. It talks about um, Christian methods in engaging with Muslims. It talks about some of the debates among Christians, for example, uh, insider movement debates and so forth. So, so what the book tries to do is to capture some of the big issues uh, that are talking points in Christian engagement with Islam and to compile it into a, into a user-friendly volume. Peter, as we wrap it up, I'd, I'd really like to know from your perspective, uh, for listeners, as, as, a, as a textualist, as somebody that knows, knows the Quran and has studied and dedicated their life to studying Islam, both text and also knowing Muslims as people, 
Um, what would you encourage listeners when they think about Muslims? You know, what should they take into consideration? And this is where you have to give that media soundbite, unfortunately. <laughs> what should we think about Muslims when we think about Muslims? I think I would probably be talking about Muslims rather than Islam. Um, so listeners who don't have a lot of time to sit down and do the study should engage with Muslims, try and see them in their differences and not boil it all down into one throwaway line. That, that's excellent. That's exactly kind of what we try to, to um, encourage people to do on the show. Uh, well, Dr. Riddell, or Peter. <laughs> yeah, I told him Australians, they, they go by first name basis. It's so not natural for us here in the United States. Right, I just want to call you Dr. Riddell, but uh, thank you so much for being on our show. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be part of it, actually, and I look forward to working uh, further with you guys. Yeah, thanks again, and uh, have a – wait, i got to try the Australian accent. Have a good day. Is that, <laughs> was that okay? That was terrible, wasn't it? I'll, I'll, do, I'll do my best. <laughs> thanks, Peter. Yeah, and the the music there was actually a Quran recitation competition. What did you think? Uh, it was amazing. I mean, listeners, you can't see the video. It's on YouTube, but uh, and we can actually put it in our show notes. Hopefully, we can put a link there. But uh, it's actually a really young kid. I mean, he looks like eight, seven. Yeah, probably a seven or eight year old boy, uh, Saudi citizen. Right. And that competition is something that they do annually, where. There, you're supposed to have memorized the entire Quran, and so kids come from all over the world to this competition to compete in order to see who is the best reciter out there. And, and Peter said that the Quran is the, around the size of the New Testament. That's right, right. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. memorize the entire thing. Oh yeah. Now they don't recite the entire thing at the competition, do they? You know, I'm not exactly sure about that. If I remember correctly, they will pull out one particular ayat or verse. And you have to go back to the beginning of the chapter of that book and recite the entire book up till that particular ayat. Wow. Yeah, we need to confirm that. But if I remember correctly, that's how it goes. So you do need to have the entire thing memorized. It's kind of like those exams. You remember those exams where the professor, like a really good exam is basically you have to know everything, but really they're only going to ask you one thing. Right. And you don't know which one it's going to be. That's right. Right. So you memorize everything. Yep. So um, basically they get up and they recite. Um, I, I think that this is one reason why Muslims argue that the Quran can't be translated either. Because if you hear the English text and then you hear side by side the English text and the Arabic text, if I were to recite what that young boy was reciting, you wouldn't find it nearly as pleasing to the ear. <laughs> So it's an aesthetic thing. <laughs> well, sir, I I think so. Definitely. Right. Yeah, I mean, his voice was haunting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially with that little the reverb, you know, it must be a giant hall that he's singing in, but that was pretty amazing. So what what was he singing? Um he was that was from uh so everything starts with that Bismillah ar-Rahim ar-Rahman in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, and then he says Yazin, which is the book uh the surah Yazin. Um 
it says, be, be the wise Quran. Indeed, you speaking about Muhammad are from among the messengers on a straight path. Uh, this is a revelation exalted in might, uh, the merciful that you may warn a people whose forefathers were not warned. Uh, so they were unaware already. The word has come into effect upon them. They do not believe indeed we have put shackles on their necks. Um, and to their chins, so that, that with their heads kept aloft, we have put before them a barrier, and behind them a barrier, and covered them, so they do not see. And so it, it goes on sort of like this. And basically, uh, just a summary, it's about uh, Muhammad's prophetic status, saying that he is affirmed as a prophet sent by God to uh, their people. So would you say, like, you know, Christians, we sing songs, and we sing a lot of scripture uh, in our songs uh, as, a, as worship to God. Would you say when these young kids are coming up there and reciting the Quran and singing it that way, would that be a part of their worship? Absolutely. They they look at the... So for the Quran, I remember we lived with a, a family in South Asia for a while, and the young boy, his name was actually Isa, which means Jesus in the Quran. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They named him Jesus. Um, and his parents were pretty pretty secular, actually. But even though they were secular, Isa still had to do his Quran recitation practice every single day. Uh, a teacher would come and teach him to recite. And he didn't know the words. He didn't speak Arabic. He didn't know Arabic, but he learned to recite the Quran. And they want to get to the point where they can recite the book, um, Yazim, because there is that special blessing sort of associated with being able to recite the text about Muhammad's prophetic status. Interesting. And so he, that must have been so difficult for him. Yeah, just every single day, not understanding the text and reciting it. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I remember teaching my son uh, the Apostles' Creed, you know, <laughs> Lord's Prayer, things like that, and there were things he didn't understand. But I don't know, he he still was into it because it was something we were learning together. And I figured later meaning would come. And I think maybe Muslims take that same perspective. They they do think though. Um, a lot of the Muslims that I've known would believe that there is a special blessing. I don't want to say all Muslims believe this, but there is certainly a large amount of Muslims that believe there's a blessing associated with the recitation of the Quran. Uh, particularly certain books have more power and certain chapters have more power than others and more of a blessing um, that are associated with them. And so this book, Yazin, is definitely one. Interesting. So I have, I have a story actually with Yazin. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so a uh, Muslim friend asked if I would explain the Quran to them. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. A Muslim asked you. Yes. A yes. non-Muslim. Good friend. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, because they know that um, these are some good friends. And they knew that uh, they were actually surprised how much uh, we knew about the Quran. And we told them that we had read the Quran and we had studied you know, good portions of the Quran. I wouldn't consider myself a Quranic scholar by any sense of the imagination. Peter Riddell is. Um, Which is but, why he's on the show. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, she, you know, this particular Muslim, she just asked one day, uh, would you be willing to help me understand Yazin? And I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> I had never, never been asked that by a Muslim. Right. That's not something you think, you know, comes to mind when you're going to enter into conversation with a Muslim. Because there have been so many times where I was, you know, hey, let me share this story from the Bible. And we would talk about the Bible or, oh, let me tell you this story from the Bible. And, you know, she was always very interested. And my wife and I had been talking with her a lot about, you know, Jesus. And then all of a sudden she comes with the Quran and says, I'd really like you to help me understand this. What do you, what do you do? And that's, what would you do? Howard? I'm just kind of curious. I, I know what I did and, and I'm, I'll get to that, but I'm kind of curious. What would you do in that situation? It's tough because you're coming from a different worldview, uh, faith, obviously. And so when you explain that text, you're going to come to different conclusions than her. 
Right, and she can, but she's having a hard time with the English. Okay. Okay. So she so wants she, to, she, she can just, recite it in Arabic. So she's talking about intellectually, not so much interpretation. Uh, well, she wants meaning. Like, what does it mean to be exalted? I mean, that's a difficult word for uh, English as a second language. Right. It's it's difficult for a lot of Americans. Yeah. So right. what is what does it mean to be exalted? What about aloft? Right. Um, you know, what are these shackles? What does that mean? Why are their heads? You know, and so there is a lot of interpretation going on, and and she wanted just basically some explanation here. <laughs> and how'd you? What'd you do? Oh man, I you know, it was one of those like on the spot moments where I literally was praying as she was speaking and asking the Lord like, help me here. You know, I, honestly, get me out of the situation was kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> um, I don't want to do this. I don't want to teach the Quran. You know, I didn't sign up for this. But at the same time, I had spent so much time sharing with her about the Bible. And something just felt very wrong when somebody was approaching me and just asking me to do something for them that they would really like help with, and I didn't want to do it. Um, so as she's asking and as I'm praying, I just basically said, um, I can't really help you as far as giving you explanation because I haven't studied it myself. You know, I know the Bible, and I'd rather talk about that. And she said, no, 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 I love it when you teach us about the Bible. <laughs> we wow. really appreciate it, but please... We also want to know about the Quran as well. And I kind of was like, well, maybe you could ask the imam. And, and the imam doesn't really talk to the, the women that much. At the right. I, that that was one question I did have. Like, you were talking to a woman. Yeah. So yeah. what was the scenario? Was she, was she with your wife and you were with other people together? Right. No, this is a family that I know really well. And the husband uh, and brother were both home. And so it was... Um, so they, they, they didn't think anything of it? No, no. It was the, okay. the sister, uh, two other sisters, a brother, um, and they're all interested. What is he going to say about this chronic verse? Because they all want to know, right. um, and they don't want to ask. And so, I, you know, I just basically had one of those moments of, all right, I'm just going to explain the words to them. I said, well, you read them when there's a word you don't understand. I'll help you understand it. And I just thought that would be the, the most loving thing I could do right. and not be a compromise of what I felt uncomfortable with, which was, I didn't want to like proselytize the Quran, like, you know, teach her about the Quran. Right. And so, and I definitely didn't want to like bash the Quran. Um, cause you knew that would separate, polarize. Yeah. Right. And, I, and I just don't, I don't think it's, it's right to bash, you know, something that she really holds dear and believes wholeheartedly that I'm not going to just use an opportunity to bash something. And so, right. Yeah, she started asking questions, and as we were reading, and then we got to, like, in Yazin, if you go on later, you know, listeners, you can read the book of Yazin, and you'll eventually get to a place where uh, it talks about the hellfire. And I, we got to the hellfire, and as we were reading about the hellfire, suddenly it occurred to me, like, this is a real place in, in the Quran, and this is a real place for her as a Muslim. And I said, this is terrifying stuff. And she kind of stopped, and she said, what do you mean? And I said, this description of the hellfire... I said, it's, it's terrifying. And her response was, well, only for those that are going to go there. And I said, well, how do you know who goes and who doesn't go? And she kind of stopped. And one of the other sisters was like, well, I know for sure I'm not going. I can't say for the rest of these, you know, like pointing to her. Other are you serious? <laughs> well, she, she, she was joking. Yeah, right? she's okay. laughing, of course. And we're, we're kind of joking around. But then I'm, I'm getting more serious. And I'm like, no, but seriously, guys, what do you think about this? How can you be certain that you yourself won't spend eternity in the hellfire because it's a real place according right. to the Quran and it's I, I actually did a paper on on it in, in one of my classes in the undergrad and it it really was terrifying they yeah were, the descriptions the, are intense right so much more description fiery than the Bible fetid does. fluid right <laughs> 
Wow. So, okay. yeah. So, I, you know, and then they start saying, well, we won't go because, you know, we're good and we are good Muslims. We pray five times a day. And they start giving me the list of all the things they do. Right. right. Okay. The pillars. Yeah. And all the things. And I said, uh, I said, can we be done with the Quran for a minute and then uh, talk about this? And they said, sure. So I set the Quran down and they had brought me some food. So, uh, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be reading the Quran anymore. So I said, I'm going to go ahead and eat while we have this discussion. And so I'm starting to eat. And I said, you know, this is really good. Um, and Muslims are really good at doing this. And so this is kind of where I learned how to do this. But I said, this food is, is excellent. What is it? And they said, you know, it's a rice, uh, lamb, curry. I said, what else is in there? I need to know all the ingredients. And they said, you know, tomato, uh, salt, pepper, you know. And they give me all of the different ingredients. And I said, are you sure? That's everything. And they said, we're sure. And I said, are you sure? I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit of a hint of pork. And they all die, die laughing. They're like rolling on the ground laughing. Like, you know, we would never do that because pork is haram. It's right. It's forbidden. Right. And uh, I'm, I was waiting to see where you're going with this. Like, are you messing <laughs> no. with it? What? No, I had an idea in the head. I'm thinking it was the Holy Spirit. Because you offended me a little bit, but I don't know. <laughs> and they said, you know, we would never do that. I said, why not? And they said, because it's forbidden. It's unclean. And I said, but if, if you did, if you had put pork in here, I would be unclean. And they said, yes, yes. And I said, well, how much? How much pork? And they said, uh, any. And I said, what about the pan? What if you had just cooked some bacon in a pan and then you use the same pan to make my food? Would that also make me unclean? And they said, yes. And I said, what about if somebody was just, you know, passing a piece of pork and a drop fell into the dish? Would that make it unclean? Yes. Well, how much? The whole, the whole dish, it's unclean. And I said, so I, I'm defiling myself by eating even just this one tiny thing. I'm defiled. And they said, yes. And I stand before God defiled and then absolutely, absolutely. And I looked at the youngest one that was joking. And I said, are you certain? Are you certain about that? I'm, I'm good. And I don't have to worry about the hellfires. And I kid you not. It was like dead silent in the room, straight look at the floor. Every single one looked at the floor and the youngest one first said, I'm not good. I am not good. And it was that moment of realization of, I do stand before God defiled. I do need some way to make this right. And right. Yeah, it was a very uh, sobering, sobering moment. So I, I, you know, I'm thankful to God that it was opportunity that actually did come out of looking at the Quran. It's, it's amazing that that the youngest would admit that. Yeah. How, well, how old was he or she? Was it a he or she? It was a she. She was fourteen. Wow. Yeah. So 14 so aware. Yeah. Well, because they, they know and they know each other and they know me and we've known each other for a while. And right. They're amongst family. They're not really hiding anything. Yeah. Everyone's known what Everybody's they've done. Everybody's well aware that we right. all have at least something in our lives that makes us stand before God not worthy. Wow. So anyway, that was one of those, uh, moments of really just, I, I think of it as a Holy Spirit moment of realization that came strangely enough through the book Yazin. Right. And pork. And pork. <laughs> That's a good com- combination. And pork. Right. And uh, yeah, so back to Peter. Like, I think Peter Riddell, with uh, his knowledge of the Quran, I think that it kind of opens doors uh, just kind of like in your story. You know, like if you did not know the Quran, you only knew the Bible, uh, I think there would be a limitation to what they would really understand. I mean, like if someone came up to me and said, hey, you know, you need to read this holy book from another religion, I would look at it and be interested on that, you know, but it wouldn't really necessarily pertain to me so deeply. Mm-hmm. But whenever you open the Quran, right, that's their book. Mm-hmm. And you had this really weird, interesting opportunity to be able to teach them about their book. 
Mm-hmm. And then whenever you open their eyes and then use the illustration in the everyday life, kind of the relationships that we're talking about doing as, as, a, as a show, right? You have this amazing opportunity to be able to share and the Holy Spirit totally capitalizes on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, a lot of people wonder, do I need to, that's a question that we get a lot. Do I need to know the Quran in order to share with Muslims? And the answer is no. You don't right. need to know the Quran. Does it help? Absolutely. Right. God can use anything. Sure. And, and, and I don't necessarily, and I'm not advocating here because there's, there's going to be naysayers out there like, you know, you know, don't pick up the Quran and you shouldn't read it and it's, uh, you know, inspired by the evil one or whatever. But there are things in the Quran that are most certainly true. I mean, the Quran right. does testify to Jesus being born of a virgin. Which is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. It's Christmas, right? <laughs> right. It's Christmas time. Yeah. You know, that's important. So we need to do a Chris- Christmas show. We need to do a Christmas show. It'll be the week after Christmas. We'll do the Anglican Christmas, 12 days. You know, <laughs> The Anglican. We'll That's proselytizing. Hey, yeah. you, you stay Sorry. out of, out of my denomination, okay? Sorry. All right, <laughs> but we'll do some Christmas stuff, talk about what uh, Jesus' birth is in Islam. But anyway, thinking about the Quran. So I, I'm not advocating that you need the Quran in order to talk to Muslims because I don't often use the Quran to bridge to Jesus. I don't think you even need the bridge with most Muslims. Most Muslims are very open to talking about Jesus. Right, especially with, uh, you said, secular uh, is that was the term you were using? Just people that aren't like so radical or die hard about it. They're they're I think they're more easily open to talk about anything. Yeah, when it comes to faith, absolutely. And and thinking about how much Jesus is referenced in the Quran, um, thinking about how much of the biblical basis there is for the Quran to even stand, I think it's important to know because when you talk about things like sin, if you didn't if you didn't know the Quran, you might not talk about sin and the concept of defilement. Okay, explain. Well, we we talk about sin as in right and wrong, deeds, actions, right? Right. But when you read the book of Leviticus, you're talking about clean and unclean. Yeah, all the time. Well, when you read the book of when you read the Quran, it's about clean and unclean, defilement. Oh. And so there's a there's a worldview that's there present within the Quran that if you can see the gospel speaks to it and it uses a certain language. So that idea of veering from the straight path, veering from the path of Allah, veering from the path of Allah's guidance, you can talk to a Muslim about, have you ever strayed from God's path? And they get it. They know what you're asking them. Now you might say, have you ever sinned? You know, if you died tonight, would you, you know, give them the four spiritual laws? Um, There'd be no context. No context. But if you ever strayed from the path of God's guidance, Basically, you're asking them, have you ever not done what the book or the revelation tells you to do, the, the oh. things that God has revealed? And the answer is most certainly yes. So it's not so much uh, your calling or God's will. It's more than that. It's straying from the path, not doing, not being in, uh, in obedience. Right, right. And you're so using their language. Word. Now, what I find fascinating is that when you read the church fathers, when you read the, the 7th century, uh, 8th century, 6th century uh, writings of the Christian church, uh-huh. they use the same language. Huh. And I think there's really something there. I wish I had time to do more reading about how we could use the ways in which the church was talking about issues of sin and salvation in the 6th, 7th, and 8th century as to be relevant for today dealing with Muslims because they use the same type of language. There's a religious language of the day. Dude, I think there's an article there that we could put up on Slumber Center or, or something like that. That would be really cool. Yeah. Because we have talked about this, you and I, before, just about our different views, our differing views, how kind of... Uh, uh, our our doctrine or the way we see certain aspects of our faith has changed from uh, earlier in church history and mm-hmm. how, how things have kind of fallen out of favor. Um, and we see things totally different. Like, uh, you know, of course, being American, uh, obviously this is an oversimplification, but uh, being more individualistic than, uh, let's say, a shame-based culture. 
uh, more traditional culture, maybe like in Asia where people are worried about their, their household rather than just themselves? Oh, man. This Sunday, I heard a testimony from an Iraqi Christian. At your church? Yes. Okay. He's uh, studying, and uh, it was fascinating. He's studying at the local university, and he was kind of sharing his testimony about his family members back in Iraq and the suffering that they're encountering under ISIS. Um, And amazing testimony. But the very first question that was asked to him uh, from the pastor was, uh, how long have you been a Christian? You, You know what his answer was? What? Well, I was born Christian. And that's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Everybody in the room is like, wait a second. Does he know Jesus? Can you Does do he that? have a personal relationship? <laughs> well, we immediately think about that personal relationship, right? But then he articulated it. He said, well, I was born Christian. I've been Christian since I was born because I trace my Christian heritage back 10 generations and I can name every one of them. Right. It's that's, a household thing. But that's a strong, you know, root of faith. Right. Not something to be like, well, does he personally know? Of course he personally knows Jesus, right. but he doesn't, territory. it's not even in his mind to have that context of I personally know Jesus because he doesn't know Jesus apart from these 10 generations of heritage, which right. I was just like, I was amazed. I was impressed. Right. Very thankful for so the very, way that he articulated eye, Very eye opening. Yeah. yeah. For him, it's like, well, my whole family is Christian because we have been for 10 generations. Yeah. And this, then is, he, this is who we are. And then no he question, began to right. articulate what that meant. And this guy was a diehard believer. He knew the Lord intimately, intimately, right. you know, but the way he, in which he, he worded it was very different. Anyway, when I, when I was, you know, thinking about those dealing with uh, some of the questions we asked Peter, what I found probably most interesting was right at the beginning when he said what drew him into studying the Quran was actually um, his own faith and looking at some of the discrepancies within the Quran and then that bringing up questions in his own faith. And it's really neat that he is an expert in another religious text, but also brings his own sort of experience from his own religion. And it, it makes the other uh, more rich that he, his own faith has been increased through studying another religious text. Right. Yeah. I don't actually even think of it in terms of that, but I think when you experience, uh, okay, uh, okay, this is, this is me personally, but I love pho. Pho is Vietnamese noodles. Okay. And when I first started eating Vietnamese noodles, I, you know, I thought it was okay, but I would taste it and I would think, oh, this is really good. But then I went to Atlanta and I had pho in like, you know, this really famous pho restaurant in Atlanta Mm -hmm. and it was infinitely better. And I had no idea because I had no context. You know, so whenever uh, uh, I went and eat pho nowadays, I've had really good pho and I can kind of tell whether or not, you know, fuzz, uh, you know, at, uh, you know, the utmost quality or whatever. So it kind of reminds me like when, when Peter reads the, the Quran, I think his faith in, in Christ kind of really um, give new perspective probably yeah. that maybe he wouldn't see if he just didn't have faith at all. He's just reading this, this religious text and, and not thinking that. But anyway, so in terms of uh, what we're saying here, I guess, is that it is good to know the Quran. It is good to know because, you know, you really you're um, you're gaining, I guess, a credibility. If you're really if you really have a heart for Muslims, um, and this is maybe something that you want to do, uh, it would be a good thing to, to learn the Quran and, and Quran and be able to speak to people on their own terms. Um, I think, I think at least it would give you a platform because Muslims are going to ask you, have you ever read the Quran? Right. Because then they're like, you know, then what are you, what are you telling me about religion? I think it's a good question though, especially if we're speaking negatively about a religion. Exactly. Cause you don't really know. It's like when somebody's like, well, I just don't like Christians because I think the Bible's this. And it's like, we've ever read it. And they're like, well, no. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It, it it takes the argument out of your mouth. Yeah, and uh, and but I think it's also really good balance with Trevor. What Trevor was saying was that 
you don't need to know the Quran to speak to Muslims. Don't let that mm-hmm. stop you. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like this balanced, you know, like if you're really interested, then go for it. Read it. Read the Quran. We have a lot of translations now, right? Like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, we're it's accessible. And then with Muslims, it's really cool to be able to, even to use that as a gateway. Like, hey, I've been reading the Quran. Really? You're a Christian. Yeah. But I've been reading the Quran because I'm interested. Uh, can you explain some of these passages to me? Well, I mean, just real quick. I mean, if you think about it, like you could be reading the Quran and come across where Jesus, you know, cleanses a leper. And there's no story. We just know that he could cleanse the leper, that he could give sight to the blind, that he could raise the dead, that right. he could do all of these amazing things in the Quran, but there's no context of the story. You could literally just go to your Muslim friend and say, I had no idea that the Quran said so much about Jesus, but also was missing so much of the stories. I know those stories. Could I share those with you? Yeah. And Muslims would be so excited to hear right, it. Right, because it's filling in the missing pieces. Yeah. Right. Like, have you ever heard the story where he raises the dead? They're like, no, do tell. Yeah, please. I'm interested. I'm all ears. I'm all, I'm always for a, a good old dead raising story. I right. mean, who wouldn't want to hear that story? And right. so Especially you, you since tell Isa it. is a hero. Isa, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So or Jesus, right? But yeah. So anyway, that's uh, that's our show for this week. Yeah. Uh, again, we are so appreciative of you guys listening and downloading and sending uh, uh, this on to your friends. Please, social media, put it out there. Whether you use Twitter or Facebook, just put our put our uh, link in there. Just uh, get people to subscribe. And something else that we want people to do is to write reviews. Yeah, we got to give a shout out to our first reviewer. Yeah, I was someone, really really excited. Someone <laughs> named Grace. We appreciate it. Uh, you know, cause some of the times we're wondering, like, I wonder how many people are listening. We go and we look at the demographics, and we're like, whoa. Right. There are a bunch of people listening, and then we don't know what they think. Yeah. And so when Grace wrote our first review, we don't know who Grace is, but Grace, we appreciate it. Right. It's not. A, it wasn't us. We didn't write it. Yeah. <laughs> Trevor and, didn't write it. And it was a re- it was a really good question you asked. Uh, so where do I write my comments? Because we keep saying, hey, guys, write in. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever said where to write in. Right. So uh, go to, and here's the thing. We just went to go set this up, and we had some problems. So... Hopefully it'll be set up by the time this podcast releases sometime tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, it's comments at truthaboutmuslims.com. Comments at truthaboutmuslims.com. All right. And uh, just to say, uh, we have uh, feature, we feature music all over. We get it from SoundCloud and uh, Creative Commons licensing. But we just got to mention who they are. So uh, DJ4 is one of the... Guys, his track was Breakdance in Kabul. <laughs> Hide, that was the Mumford and Sons sounding uh, song, uh, Kama Sama, and then Nick Bike. So, thank you guys for producing that awesome music, and uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We'll see you next week. Yeah, I just like the idea of Breakdance in Kabul. Yeah, well, I, good stuff. I'm not a dancer, but yeah. Okay, well, we'll see you guys next week. <laughs> I'm just thinking breakdance fighting, you know, like okay. break it down. Okay, oh, Beat Street. Okay, okay, <laughs> we're, right. we're gone. All Bye. Right. See you later. <laughs>